Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. He was so petrified and so little and so scared. And and I wondered, right then and then, I thought, how the fuck was I so scared of this person? What, What did he have over me that was so terrifying? And yet I could have ended his life in seconds. He is back from the great beyond. He's back from the dirt. He's back from down under. Well, he never really left us. It's the Coffin Confessor, Bill Edgar. Now, Bill's an old chum of mine now. We've been in touch quite a lot over the past few years, and he's achieved some world-renown for his role in crashing the funerals of his clients to reveal their secrets. People with not long to live go to Bill to ask him to get up and say certain things at their funerals. And he does it in quite a bolshy, aggressive, sweary way, uh, confrontational, I would say. He also gets asked to get things done uh, once these people pass on. So, for example, clearing a sex dungeon from the home of an 88-year-old man who didn't want his family seeing it, or turning up at a biker's funeral to reveal that the man in the coffin had been gay. You can find our first chat on episode 19, so about two years ago, on this podcast. It was a fun, pithy chat, one of my favourites yet. But Bill's book, The Coffin Confessor, has since come out, and so I wanted to get him back on. And after starting reading it, I was shocked to see quite how deep some of the abuse stories around his childhood go. It was a really shocking and awful childhood, a horrible way to grow up. Um, Every time he turned to an adult for help, he was abused by that adult. Bill will tell us all about that today while also sharing some stories on his coffin confessing and linking the two together. You know, what about his childhood made him the person who wants to get secrets out into the open? Get his book, The Coffin Confessor, in all the usual places. We do a great bonus episode that you can find on patreon.com slash andrewgold. Sign up there to support the podcast while getting ad-free episodes and bonus segments. The ad-free episodes will just go into your Apple. I'm not sure if it works with Spotify, but it just goes into your Apple One or your CastBox or your other platforms and stuff. Um, some big episodes are coming up about child sacrifice, violence, you know, what violence really is and why we do it and the children of god cult but now you're on the edge of life death and the secrets in between it's the coffin confessor i've got bill edgar the coffin confessor back on the show are you happy to be back here bill oh mate love love coming back to seeing you mate (laughs) it's it's so nice you're one of my favorite ever ever guests i absolutely love what you do and i think just for those who haven't gone that far back in my podcast you know to the beginning and all that um maybe you could start by sort of reintroducing yourself and what what it is a coffin confessor is and what you do uh and 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 maybe also recounting the first time you did it yeah not a problem andrew so uh to all your guests and all your listeners out there uh my name's bill edgar and i am the coffin confessor 
I'll tell those you loved how much you loved them and those you love to hate to fuck off. That's basically what I do. <laughs> what does that actually mean? Well, what it means is that I'm actually hired by the deceased before they die um, uh, and basically I get uh, to be the only person on the planet, really, that's invited to the funeral and to crash their funeral on behalf of the deceased and tell those exactly what uh, the deceased has on their mind. Man, what kind of people then would be coming to you and saying, look, I'm, I'm dying soon, you know, can you come to my funeral? Oh, mate, there's all types nowadays. I mean, it's good, bad, funny, sad. There's a whole variety. I mean, when I first started, um, and I'll be honest with you, it started as a joke. It was nothing more than a joke. I just told a dying gentleman that I'd crash his funeral for him. And lo and behold, he took me up on the offer and he paid me well to do so. And since that funeral, it just went uh, nuts. It really did. I mean, I did another funeral and another one, and it was all by word of mouth, nothing more, nothing less. It was just word of mouth, and, yeah, it went crazy. And then other doors started opening where I was starting to uh, uh, get requests to go to people's houses and clean their houses out before their family and friends found uh, certain items. And it could be, you know, drugs, guns. It could be uh, sexual items. It could be anything they were embarrassed about and they didn't want you know, their loved ones to find. So I'd get rid of those, even web browsers. So, yeah, it took a turn. Because you were working first as like a, a private investigator. I remember you talking about you were working in a hotel. You helped a hotel to to find out that the cleaners were stealing, right? Yeah, so I'm still a private detective. I have been for, you know, what, 13, 14 years now. And I, I do gigs where I go into uh, certain uh, businesses yeah, and I find out that the fraud and the theft and the, uh, you know, the talk back within, uh, within those companies and I'll report it to the general manager and, uh, yeah, it's something that's come about uh, purely out of accident again. I mean, I just – I created that job because I was at a meeting once and I just heard that the uh, – you know, that stuff was going missing and I just approached a, a general manager and I said, look, you know, I'll find it for you. I'll find out who's doing it and uh, you hire me as a cleaner or a, or a security guard and I'll, I'll find out who's doing it for sure. And lo and behold, he did. And, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what started that gig, and I, I do that every year now. It's, a, it's an eight-week gig, so every every year for eight weeks, I go into a certain resort or a, a business or company, and I go undercover. So then you've, st- you've then got to do the work of the security guard, presumably, or the cleaner at the same time for those eight weeks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't mind folding sheets, making beds and all that, because at the end of the day, I'm actually, you know, basically interacting with these employees uh, that are uh, – you know, doing the wrong thing, and and it's 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 funny sometimes. I'll, I'll be making a bed, and they'll be making the bed with me, and I'll say, you know, I wouldn't mind some of these sheets, and they'll say, oh yeah, well, just put them in a big bin bag, drop them down the chute, and tell Terry the security guard that they're down there, and he'll put them aside for you for when you leave at the end of the day. And I'll be like, oh thanks, mate, no worries. <laughs> Mate, you must have so many people after you, no? Yeah, probably. You know, I've got <laughs> I've got more enemies than friends, and I haven't got a friend in the world, to be honest with you. But at the end of the day, you know, I I don't really care. I mean, I, I'm here for a for a time, and and my time's uh, what I make it. And and at the end of the day, you know, if anybody wants to come after me, come after me. I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty well known now. Everyone knows where I am, and I have no fear of man.
not since my childhood anyway. So tell me again, going back to that first ever time uh, with the coffin confession, you made that joke. So who was that guy? Yeah, so his name was Graham and I was working for him investigating his finances because he'd realised that uh, some of his uh, finances and monies had gone missing and he had an idea that it was his accountant and he asked me if I could investigate the accountant, which I did, and I did find the accountant had stolen a a bit of money from him. Um, At the end of the day, the accountant did pay it back um, and there was an arrangement between Graham and him. I don't know what their arrangement was. I did my job, and um, but I got close to Graham and I got to uh, to know him quite well. I mean, it was only uh, what six, eight weeks that I knew Graham, and in that time, he told me, you know, his deepest desires, his secrets, his uh, his whole life. You know, in a very short time, and it was his best mate that actually did the dirty on him and was trying to um, sleep with his wife, which was uh, really belittling and it was hurtful for Graham because he was he was on his deathbed. He couldn't get out of his bed. He couldn't defend his family. And at what stage of life do you get to the point where you're so physically drained and weak that you can't defend your family and you need someone else to do it? And you know what? I stepped up and did it for him. So you, were, you had to be sure, didn't you? So you were, am I right that you sort of – so he was on what, what would eventually be his deathbed – and he could see sort of through the hole in the door what his this, his mate was up to with his wife. And did you put you put sort of cameras on the bedposts or something? Is that right? Yeah. So I organised with Graham that I could um, put surveillance cameras around the house and um, see exactly what was going on. Graham could see up the hallway from his bed to the kitchen, and he could see his best mate uh, come to the house. And his best mate wasn't even coming to see Graham. He didn't even say hello to Graham. He was just going straight to his wife and his wife wasn't taking the advantage. She was quite scared too. She didn't want anything to do with him. But he kept persisting and persisting and kept being there for her and trying to be this so-called, you know, great mate. And he wasn't. He was just a dog. And the best thing that I ever did for Graham and and for her and, and even for myself was to be able to stand up, interrupt the funeral service while his best mate was given the eulogy and tell him to sit down, shut up or fuck off. Do, do you think there's something about you that makes people want to tell their secrets to you? I didn't think so at first, but now I do, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Um, I think I've just got that um, persona or something about me that people – um, just can trust. I, I, I guess it's that trust issue and, and factor that I have. A lot of people have issues with trust within their own families and uh, when they meet me, they I think they just realise that, you know, they're going to get what they, they pay for, they're going to get what's going to be done for them without a care or concern for those left behind. You know what I was looking into because I think, I don't know if I told you I'm writing a book about uh, the nature or the psychology of secrets um, and apparently we do tell people secrets when they are quite um, compassionate, but also they're not too polite. We don't like to tell polite people secrets because we worry that they'll they'll like dub us in. And you're like always, you know, effing and jeffing, swearing all over the place. And you're probably not that polite, are you? And I think we trust people, actually trust people like that more. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Come on, Andrew, fucking hell. I don't uh, swear that much, do I? Fuck. <laughs> fucking hell. Oh, mate. Oh, oh Jesus. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I, I think I, <laughs> it makes me laugh because at the end of the day, I 
I trust nobody. I absolutely trust nobody. I mean, you know, and if some bloke walked up to me and said, oh, I'll fucking crash your funeral for you, I don't give a fuck what anyone says, I'll do it. I'd just tell him to get fucked. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> just me. I would. I'd just say, fuck off, idiot. Um, however, yeah. I guess it's, it's a case that it's not just uh, crashing funerals. There's a lot more to it. You know, there's, there's empathy, sympathy. There's the, um, the the looking into the actual truth of the matter. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. And I guess my background, um, and obviously they Google me and they research me and who I am. They're not just going to pick anybody. I mean, they want to make sure that, you know, the person's genuine and he's got, you know, good character. And one thing I never, ever do in my whole life is I'll never, you know, um, my integrity is everything. Yeah, it really is. No, I understand that. And I think that's a big part of it as well. And and a big part appears to be your upbringing, which, you know, last time you came on, I don't think I knew all that much about it. But obviously, I've been reading your book, which I've got to say is, you know, somebody got in touch with me who listens to the podcast, you know, saying, man, this is one of the, my top three books of all time. So that's when I emailed you saying, mate, I've got to read your book. So you've sent it over just like a couple of days ago and I'm halfway through it now because it's only a couple of days ago. But my word, this it's just the most extraordinary. But I'm a slow reader. But but because I was just so I can't sleep just reading this. You're a fantastic writer. I I can't stress enough how much I love the book. Um but yeah, tell me about your upbringing, the house you grew up in because because man, you you grew up in some difficult times. Yeah, I did, but uh thank you for that about the book. I mean, it's yeah, I feel very humbled and 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 privileged to be able to tell my story, especially to people like yourself. But, I mean, yeah, where I came from was, um, you know, basically abused from, from you know, the night before my eighth birthday. Uh, you know, I was sexually, physically, mentally abused by my grand- grandfather. And then in the morning, I was given a bike. Uh, happy birthday. <laughs> you know? um, and that went on for many years. And then I attended a... Um, a school on the Gold Coast that I won the um, a scholarship to to one of the most prestigious sporting schools in Australia, you know the Southport School, also known as TSS, and I won that scholarship for sporting. I was a very good soccer player, and uh, lo and behold, it ended up being a pedophile's playground, and uh, I was abused there as well. So it was uh, abuse at home, and then abuse at school, and then back home for abuse, and back to school for abuse, and uh, yeah, it, it was. Uh, it was hard. It was very hard. I mean, I, I lived a life of not knowing, you know, whether I ever wanted to be here from the age of eight. I mean, you know, I, I think I commit, tried to commit suicide, you know, half a dozen times before I was 16 years of age. My word. it's. I'm so sorry you went through that. Um, and, and I mean, you grew up in, in what I suppose you'd call poverty. Uh, is that right? And you were sh- sort of sharing a house with a lot of people and you didn't know about that other world um, of the Southport school and all that when you grew up? Oh, I had no idea. I mean, I lived in, yeah, I mean, we lived in government housing and uh, we got kicked out of place to place because the family couldn't afford to pay rent and we lived on the streets and, and in tents and caravans and, and back of buildings and, and this was a whole family. This wasn't just me, mum and the brother and sister. This was like me, mum, brother, sister, aunts, uncles, grandparents. I mean, it was the whole tribe. And it was fucking terrible. I mean, it was just disgusting the way we lived. And um, we, we didn't have a hope. I never had a hope, that's for sure. And by gaining a scholarship at the Southport School, you know, I, I, 
I personally thought that it was going to be, you know, the be all, be, be all and end all for my whole life. I was going to get somewhere and do something with my life, but it was, um, I was targeted. That was, that was, at the end of the day, that's all it was. I was just targeted. Even getting in to that school, like your mum seemed to be pissed off. The neighbours were pissed <laughs> off. Your, 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 your mum had been taking your, your money you'd been earning as well, like $2 a week or whatever uh, at the school. <laughs> Yeah, I was fucked over from the start, wasn't I? <laughs> I mean, honestly. Why was your mum pissed off about you getting into a posh school as a scholarship? Oh, it's embarrassing, mate. Embarrassing. Someone living in government housing, they all had to stay in the same fucking area, the same lifestyle, the same poverty level. Uh, to have a son that uh, was unique and and could, you know, aspire to be something, well, that wasn't going to happen. They couldn't allow that. I mean, that was just, yeah, that was embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose you were saying as well, you wrote in the book as well, like, that, you know, she couldn't then go next door and ask for help, you know, little handouts and things because it was like, look, you got a kid at this school. Oh, no. <laughs> That's right. You've got a kid that's at a school that, you know, is what, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year back then in the 80s for the kid to go to that school. I mean, you know, how dare you come to us for bread, milk or sugar, you know. And I've got to say, at the same time, I, I feel for her in that regard, like it would have been very embarrassing and everything else. But at the same time, me personally, why not embrace it? Why not do something with it and, and nurture it and, and make it good for not just myself, but for everyone in the family. But instead, no, it was it was a bad thing. Yeah, she could have just owned it and been like, "So what? My son's. I'm I'm going to show off and fuck all of you." And and then exactly. and then also because you could you know you go on to make something of yourself at this school. It helps the whole family, doesn't it? Exactly. That's exactly right. But no, that wasn't to be. It was it was a shame. It was an embarrassment, and it wasn't. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it just it didn't didn't work out. But at the end of the day, you know what? If I hadn't gone through it, I wouldn't be where I am today. No, absolutely right. Did did you? Um, I haven't got to the end of the book, of course. Did you at any point? Did you tell your mum about the abuse from at least from your grandpa? She fucking well told me. <laughs> Can you believe that? And she come and told me. She said, "You know what? I knew it was happening. I um, my." Yeah, her and, and her sister, my auntie, they both knew exactly what was going on. Um, <gasps> they they allowed me to be abused so that way they could keep living under his roof and were able to um, survive. They said that I was the um, – he loved me and he, he I was his uh, favourite and I was to be basically his. Um, so when she told me that, I was actually in my late 20s. Um, I, I could have killed her because to me – Knowing and doing nothing is just as bad as a pedophile. Yeah, so it, it um, yeah, it sort of it tore my heart out that she actually knew. I mean, I, I was already upset with her and 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 I was close to hating her, but now she's dead to me anyway, so it doesn't matter. When she told you that, was she just? Is it like it sounds like? She, was she trying to rub it in or something, or was she trying to sort of make amends at that point? I oh, know it was to make amends to clear her own conscience and to let let me know that you know what. She's um, she's sorry it happened, but it happened, and uh, deal with it. Well, you know what? There's <laughs> uh, the, the old saying: you can forgive and forget. I do neither. You know, I do neither, mate. And uh, she can uh, she can rot in hell for all I care. Do you reckon he might have been abusive with her and her sister as well? 
Uh, quite quite possible, but at the same time, I've always said, and and I found this throughout my time and my life, you know, in and out of jail when I was quite young too, that um, pedophiles, when they abuse a boy, they love boys. Uh, it's not boys and girls. Uh, they're specific on the types of people. So I used to think that until I looked into it and the psychology of it, and now I believe it's just, yeah, nah, not possible. Tell, tell me about, if you don't mind, that, that fishing trip, because it just sounded absolutely appalling oh that was horrendous <laughs> horrendous i mean a, a day out learning how to fish with my grandfather sitting on a boat getting sunburnt and just you know catching a fish and then he you know i wanted to care and take care of this well i've never fished in my life since you know that never never once and i'll tell you a complete honest story uh, as god as my witness yesterday my wife and i just dropped into a fish farm and we were going to buy some fish to take home um, to cook last night and uh, we got to the fish farm and I didn't realise that they were, they were live fish that they sell. And my wife said, um, oh, we'll take a bucket. And I said, no, nah, no, we can't, we won't. You know, and she's like, why, why, why not? And I'm like, I, I just don't want fish tonight, okay, I don't want it. So we got in the car and we drove away and um, as we're driving away, she's like quite, quite upset. And then she said, why didn't you want the fish? What's going on? And I said, you know what, they were alive. I, I don't want to kill them. And she suddenly realised, and all these times and all these years that have gone past, I still can't kill an animal, <laughs> you know, and it's just something, yeah, it was a, a terrible thing for my grandfather to do, stand up and hold a fish in front of me and tell me that um, if I ever told anyone in the family this had happened to me and he gutted the fish in front of me and stabbed it and killed it and mutilated it and... Uh, is stayed with me for life. Fucking hell. And he got you to sit on some boiling hot uh, surface as well, not naked. Yeah, I had to sit on his lap and I put on such a show and such a tantrum that he made me go sit on the bow of the boat, which was a uh, fiberglass. And I mean, it's 40 degree heat over here during summer and he made me sit down on it and I, I couldn't sit down on it. And then he forced me to and my bum got stuck to the um, fiberglass and it peeled away and bled and it was it was yeah, horrendous. And um, when I got home and I was in the shower and mum come in and I told mum what had happened and she belted me for telling lies, you know, and it was terrible. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think your grandpa, as well as a paedophile, might have been a psychopath? Like, he lacked empathy. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, mate, I, I believe that. Um, 
Yeah, and you know what? When I when I I think I was sixteen when I confronted him, and I don't know if you're up to that part of the book or you've read that part of the book. Um, when I confronted him, and I had him in my hand, uh, you know, his neck was in my hand, and I was just squeezing it, and I could have killed him in an instant. But he was so petrified and so little and so scared, and and I wondered I, right then and then I thought, how the fuck was I so scared of this person? What what did he have over me that was so terrifying? And yet I could have ended his life in seconds. It was just it was insane. I just let him go and kicked him and, and spat on him and walked out. I suppose it was different because you were little before, weren't you? And you know the, we all remember when you're younger, you look up to these adults like they're. They're just the ultimate authorities, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, and and that's the thing. So you know, you, you turn you, you turn into an adult or you know a teenager, and you start thinking that you know, uh, fuck you, you're going to die. You know, you did this to me, and then you know, and and to be honest with you, I could have killed. I could have spent the rest of my life in jail after killing him, but you know, I didn't kill him. So you know, I made his life a misery. misery fucking therefore, after that. Yeah, and, and, and I've got to say, every Father's Day since he died in the 90s, every Father's Day I make an effort to go to his grave and I piss on it every Father's Day. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yep. No, too right. And it, you, you raise an interesting point because if you had killed him when you were 15, you know, I don't know what the law, I don't know enough about law, but surely if there's a, you know, a grandpa who's been abusing his kid their whole life, there must be some sort of allowance for that. I don't know. Yeah, I mightn't have got life. I might have got 10 years instead. <laughs> you know, no, of course not. But, I mean, you know, they say you're revenge or an eye for an eye. I, I got my revenge, mate, and I continue to get it because I'm still here. I'm still living and I'm still breeding and, 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 and you know, and I don't allow him or my mum, or any of those that hurt me into my space. I just don't allow them. You know, they're dead to me, they're gone, and if we die and we end up in, in heaven or hell and they're there, wherever, I'll attack them there too. Fuck them. <laughs> do, you, do you get a sense that they're at all, you know, sad about what's happened, that they that they wish they could be in touch with you? Oh, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't give a fuck either. No. Well, too right, to be honest. Fuck them. Honestly. Um you went. You went to this this posh school, a completely different world to anything you knew at the time. You were wearing the blazer that they had and all that, the uniform. But obviously, <laughs> living in the area you did, your first day cycling to school, what happened? <laughs> I got beat up. <laughs> I got the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> I won a scholarship to this school that was on the prestige part of the 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 Gold Coast in Australia, you know, and it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. But I had to travel through uh, the state school that was the most notorious state school on the Gold Coast called Kiba Park High, and I had to ride past that in my school uniform <laughs> on my first day. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is so cool. It's so unreal. And I got stopped by a couple of boys, and they beat the shit out of me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they, they basically punished me, and from that day on, I never rode to school again in my school uniform. I just wore normal clothes. Oh my God, it just—you couldn't get a break. I, I've I got a, ti- <laughs> a, a I've got a tiny version of that because uh, I don't think I come from a really posh family. But my dad came in some money in the nineties. So he was able to send me, not my siblings, to you know, to uh, well, my brother for a bit to a posh school and all that. And uh, you do have that feeling. If you're walking around, you know that people are looking at you and they want to 
you know do something to you and i did once it was that it was actually after that it was a couple of years later i was at leeds university and i was walking and i got like a fellow came up to me and he was just sort of having, asking me for my sandwich and i didn't give it to him and then he punched me in the face just whacked me in the jaw and i could tell it was <laughs> it was i could tell it was because i looked a bit posh or whatever it might be and then from that moment on i've sort of tried as hard as possible not to look in any way that way you know because it rubs people up the wrong way yeah oh absolutely and, and i've got to say to you that um Every person that ever hurt me, touched me, abused me, fought me, I've got back. I've rocked up at their doorstep. Believe me, you. I, I have, even up until the last person I caught up with was 10 years ago. He's married man with four kids and I rocked up to his door. I knocked on his door and I said, g'day, Carl. Remember me? And he said, no, no, I don't remember you. I said, you went to Kibra Park High? He said, yeah, yeah, I did, mate. Did you go there? And I punched him right in the face. Fuck off. And I said, I was, I was the kid on the bike. And he just <sighs> looked at me and cried. No. You know? And I said, you're the last one. Yeah, <sighs> every one of them, mate. I've got, got back at every one of them. Oh, so you knew who the kids were? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were all from my neighbourhood. One of them was my neighbour. Ah. Oh. Did you make a list then of like people who had wronged you over the years? And like, um, it sounds it's like quite filmic. Yeah, I've always, I've always, always, always kept diaries to this very day. From when I was a kid, I kept diaries, and that's why I guess the Southport School's so worried about what's going on now because I've presented those diaries to the lawyers and to the courts, and now they're going, "Holy shit." We didn't realise he kept diaries. Well, it wasn't a point that you had to realise I kept diaries. I kept them for my own self. self, It was was my own self-help. I'd write in diaries, you know, and I've got – I think I've got uh, 37, 38 diaries in in my filing cabinets, which I've actually – funny enough, I've only just finished – Putting them all on um, on certain drives, so that way, if anything happens to me, they're they're somewhere else as well. So, yeah. Oh my God! So yeah, we that that's amazing, by the way, because I was thinking when you said you know you've launched this lawsuit and stuff, and I was thinking, but it's one of those things where they could be like our word against yours. But if you've got diaries from back in the day, that's pretty fucking strong. Oh, I've got diaries from back from 1983 onwards. Yeah. Shit. So you went initially to go and see a teacher who'd been nice to you because they hadn't most of them hadn't been nice to you because they're going look mate you don't even pay for this school you you dick (laughs) (laughs) outrageous because you think nowadays you'd like to think they'd be like oh this is the kid who doesn't have the money to pay for the school let's be nice to him (laughs) you know you know what yeah go on (laughs) oh fucking hell i rock up at school i'm with all these kids and they've got fucking money fucking pouring out of their fucking wallets and their, their pant pockets and they're, they're just money upon money, you know, and I've walked in, I've got nothing. This teacher comes up to me and he goes, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't have won the scholarship. You're from fucking public housing. I'm going to call you charity case. So when I you hear the words charity case, you come running, you little fucker. <laughs> Introduction to the richest school in Queensland. <laughs> that is disgusting, man. Because we had, uh, my, my po- and I think my school wasn't, it doesn't, from the sounds of things, it wasn't the same level, but it was still a posh school. And we had a teacher who had a bit of a meltdown because he was working class and he had like a proper Scouse Liverpool accent and that. And he was just, because we were messing about in class and he was like, you guys don't know how fucking rich you are and how fucking lucky you are <laughs> and you're throwing it. You know, it was the opposite of what of what you got. So I was so sad to hear what what how they were being to you but there was one teacher who was nice to you 
it is it is a case that you read in the book and every time you're like okay oh well this will go well then and then <laughs> you know and you, you go and speak to this teacher in his staff room and then how does he how does he react uh, he fucking abuses me cunt <laughs> excuse the language there uh listen yeah Basically, I, I go to a teacher and I'd had enough. I'd, I'd had enough. I was being abused at home and at school and uh, I went and saw this teacher and I said, look, um, I said, I need to talk to you. And he's like, oh, yeah, what's the problem? And I said, look, I'm, I'm being touched at home and at school. And he said, oh, who's touching you? And I'd say, my grandfather and another teacher in year eight. And he'd say, oh, and, well, listen, you know what? I want you to come back in a couple of days. We're going to sit down. I'm going to look after you. Nothing's going to happen from here on end, okay? You sit tight. And I'm like, oh, excellent. Something's going to happen finally. A couple of days later, I go, you know, he calls me into his office and uh, I go in there and he's uh, he's sitting at his desk and he starts uh, patting me on the back and putting his hand down behind my bum and then says, okay, now show me what your grandfather does to you at home on me. And then when you sort of, if you've, he then starts saying, you know, that he'll tell everyone about your grandpa and all that stuff if you if you let it out. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. He started threatening me and saying if I said anything, he was going to let all the kids know that I was in love with my grandfather and my grandfather was molesting me and that I was stealing kids' lunches and that out of their bags. And he'd go around and actually steal shit out of lockers, <laughs> the kids' lockers and dorms, and then say, look, I've taken these items. Look at the box of items. Now you know what they are. Now, if you say anything, I'm going to tell the kids that you're the one that stole them. And I, what, what the fuck could I do? I was 12, I was, what, 13, 14? Oh, my God. It's just awful. And I mean, look, we, we had one at school as well who got arrested. He got arrested, this, this one, one of our teachers. Um, but you must have grown up with this feeling that there are a lot of homosexual, psychopathic paedophiles just around, right? Yeah, and they were all fucking married men. They weren't even gay. They were married men. How fuck's that? I was thinking, here I am, and I'll be honest with you, Andrew, I'm going out on the streets at fucking 15, 16 years of age, taking my rat revenge, poofed bashing. I was seeking out poofters and bashing them because I hated them because of what they did to me. And it wasn't until later on in life that I realised these men that abused me were all fucking married men, grandfathers, parents. They were just loving people of the community. And I took it out on the wrong people. And for that, I'll never forgive myself because, you know, it, it wasn't their fault. Not one gay man has ever hurt me, never offended me, never done anything to me. And yet I blame that fucking community. And why? Because that's what fucking society told you. It did back then, didn't it? It was, it was There was a conflation of gay people and gay paedophiles. That's right. And it was never the case for me. Never the case. You know, we're always married men, you know, and it, it fucking it destroyed my, my childhood, took my whole childhood away, you know. Where's the lawsuit now? Well, the uh, Southport School's got 28 days as of from the 13th of this month to uh, put in a rebuttal and to put in some defence. Uh, however, they've already admitted they haven't got a defence. I put in a claim of what I could only go for, which was $2.6 um, which is okay. I mean, at the end of the day, no money's going to satisfy me. It wasn't about money. It was about an apology and for acceptance. And the school did turn around and tell me that I was a liar you know, and, and all this for 30 years. And now they're saying, well, you know, take the money. We're not going to apologize because an apology is worth, you know, seven to $10 million for us. So why would we apologize? What? What do you mean? Well, that's what they're thinking because if they apologize publicly, that means that everybody knows and that they don't get the people to 
send their kid to the school. So they lose money. I think it, I mean, it's an acknowledgement of, of a lot of wrongdoing. And look, you're right about the money because like, there's not a person alive who would take the 2.6 million and, and also take you know, that kind of abuse at school. You know, you wouldn't take, you wouldn't let your kid be paid 2.6 million to go through that. No fucking way. And you know what? At the end of the day, I, I'm self-made, mate. You know, Andrew, my wife and I lived in a tent with two children. We brought ourselves up. I worked every fucking job you could think of. I became a, a professional boxing bag, make sure I was getting punched in the head for a couple of dollars just to make sure we got ends meet. You know, uh, I, I did every job possible and, you know, I did that to feed the family. And throughout the book, it, it tells you that and where I've come from, where I am today. And today, I am a self-made man. We own a couple of properties. My wife and I are not in debt. We've, we've done very hard life, but we've struggled. But, you know, now we've just hit our 50s and we're enjoying it. We can sit back and, and for the first time in my life, my wife, if she wants a pair of shoes, she can go and get them. She wants a fucking new car. She can go get one. Ugh, what a feeling, man! And and it's a great feeling for just. I mean, for me, as I feel great because I, you know, just reading you when you read a person's sort of memoir and book, I think you do feel a very intimate bond with them. I'm sure everybody reading your book will feel that, and so it is such a lovely feeling to hear that and to hear that you're able to be happy now with your family. What was? Do you think you experienced? Did it make you extra protective with your own kids? Yeah, I believe it did. I believe that I um, – uh, look, both my children will tell you I was a great father. They tell me that all the time. They said I wasn't very overly protective because I allowed my, my daughter to go to, uh, you know, to schoolies overseas and my son went to Vietnam and, and they travelled the world by themselves when they were very young. And um, uh, that was because I wanted them to explore and experience what I never did. Um, but I was always – uh, careful about the people that hung around our house or around us. And I guess that's why today I don't have any friends because I'm very uh, very cautious about who, who I let in. Well, we can be friends, Bill. We can have our, our Australia to England... Uh, what what is it? What, uh, what are those? What do you call it when you got a mate from you know through letters? Oh, I don't know. Another fucking mate through letters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot the word. And now those people be emailing me. With, pen pal. Pen pal. Oh, I'm so happy you said that. Who can be people, pen pals? People <laughs> they start emailing me, going, "What do you mean you don't know a word? You fucking idiot!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll oh. tell you what, Andrew. When uh, when the, when it hits the big screen, the old coffin confessor, you'll be the first to know, mate, because oh. uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with you and I've had a great time talking to you over the years. It's been great. Oh, mate, I really want to. Because what people don't know, listeners, is that me and my stepmom, we, we were trying to get something away with some sort of TV series, TV series about you because it's just such a phenomenal story. And we wanted the fella, do you know his name, the fella from Flight of the Concords? No. No, I do remember you saying, but I can't remember his name now. Flight of Concords, Murray. Yeah. He's, he's from New Zealand. Uh, Murray Hewitt, yeah. Reese Darby. So we we even got in touch with his people, who were like, "Yeah, he'd be really interested to play it." Uh, but what what is the what is the latest on that front from yours? Because we didn't end up going. It's just you know, it didn't end up happening for us. But what's going on? Well, I signed a, a an agreement with Paramount Pictures over in the US. So I've got an agent, Steve Mandel, over there. Um, and uh, the latest is is I've just had a uh, a very interesting uh, Skype with a gentleman by the name of Marlon Wayans and Rick Alvarez. Now Marlon played uh, White Chicks. He was in White Chicks with his brother. The movie, 
uh, a great bloke, very, very funny man and, and just a really nice gentleman. Um, to my knowledge, he will be the coffin confessor um, in the movie. And, uh, yeah, it's all looking pretty cool. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Ecstatic, actually. Marlon Wayans is a huge name. I mean, because he, he was in Scary Movie. Um, he's in a, quite a few of those sort of comedies and stuff. He's a very funny guy. Uh, and he was in Requiem for a Dream. I remember that. He plays sort of a fairly minor character in that, but that's a really um, classic film. Uh, that's really cool. Is that going to go into like the whole past as well, like your your growing up? No, I don't believe so. I believe that's just going to be the movie. I mean, it'll be a movie a bit like, um, say, Wedding Crashes. Um, <laughs> it, it'll be that similar type scenario, I believe, or, or something down that road. I mean, as far as the uh, my my version goes, I believe that'll be the television series that'll be coming out. Um, so there is a series coming, and there's also a documentary. So there's a there's a fair few things happening. Oh my god, mate! I wish you all the best for that. That's so exciting um, to hear. I, yeah, I love it's that. pretty cool. I've been able to sort of get in touch and see it all happening. We should let those who have again. So a lot of people won't have heard the first episode, and I do encourage you to go back. It's one of my first ever episodes. It was in the first twenty or so. Uh, but tell me some of your stories, because you know, for example, there's that one about. Um, seeing seeing a mate's wives naked <laughs> uh look that was um that was pretty sad you know this guy he just didn't want to die and um he, he was a beautiful bloke really nice guy and he he just didn't want to die he didn't want to leave his family and uh i guess like any of us uh, a lot of us say oh we're not scared of death but you know what we are scared of leaving the bloody family behind that's that's the fear leaving the loved ones behind. And this guy had that in, in bucket loads. Uh, but he had a sense of humour about him. And he said to me, he said, you know, when, at my funeral, make sure you tell all my mates that I'll be out there looking at their wives naked. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, why not? Why not, mate? You know, go your own way and have your own feelings and sayings and, and whatever you do, you do. But um, it was very sad because yeah, he had a young family and it was, uh, yeah, it's horrible. But at the same time, he he went the way he wanted to go. Yeah, so that means that so so I gather that you never set the official price at the beginning, but it was ten thousand Australian dollars. Is that right? Yeah. So I never I, I I never set the price. It was ten grand. Graham paid me ten grand to do it, and I'm glad he did because at the end of the day, it stopped a lot of people just using my services to tell bullshit and just to turn up at funerals and be gimmick. Um, it, it set a standard, which was really good. And at the end of the day, I now charge between two and ten thousand dollars because they don't need the money where they're going, and I never get a complaint. Yeah, no, you don't. But so, and what what is it that lets you sort of? How do you set the price between two and ten? Well, ten's everything. I mean, ten's not just a funeral crash; it could be a home sweep as well. You get everything in the in the ten grand. Um, and you, you might even get a face-to-face where I might have to go to someone's house and just punch him in the face on behalf of the deceased, <laughs> which I have no problem doing either, you know, yeah, as yeah. long as there's enough credible evidence behind it. But, I mean, you know, two grand is usually a viewing. I've been to a lot of viewings lately. Um, so I'll go to a viewing and I'll place items in the coffin, um, mainly mobile phones. I don't know why so many people want to be buried with a mobile phone, but they do. They might think they're going to wake up. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, for four, four and a half thousand dollars, I pinprick the body to make sure they're dead. Um, That's pretty confronting. Yeah. Does that, I mean, are you you not creeped out by any of this stuff? No, it's not me. I'm just doing it. (laughs) Well, it is you doing it. You're you're pinpricking a body. 
Yeah, but it's not my body. No, <laughs> no luckily it's I'm not. I'm just pinpricking it to make sure there's nothing. Yeah. Uh, look, Andrew, nothing, you know, at the end of the day, nothing really gets to me. I, I, I get paid to do a job, I do it. And it's not like I walk in there like and I tell the people that, oh, I'm about to use your deceased loved one as a pin cushion. You know, I actually asked for a couple of minutes, you know, by myself because I knew the person and wanted to say goodbye in my own way. And then I'll use them as a pin cushion. <laughs> Bloody hell. And they've never presumably ever woken up from that? No, mate, never. Um, I've got to say, the last funeral I crashed, and it was quite a unique, um, and it was only a couple of months ago, it was a quite unique request. I had to walk in to the service, walk up to the coffin, open the coffin, see that it was the deceased, look at the wife, and nod to her to let her know that it was him in the coffin, and then walk out. That was all I had to do. Um and the reason for that is the guy who died, his mother, when she died and passed away, at her funeral, it wasn't her in the coffin. <gasps> they mixed them up. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, so they had a genuine request, and that's what I did. But you know something you've got to do, and it's something that I always do in life. I prepare and I plan uh, because not every coffin will open the way you think it does. They've all got a little latch or a lock on them. Oh, my. So you've got to look up what what the cof- what the coffin's going to be like. How you're going to open it? Presumably because the wife exactly. didn't want to look, look at him dead and that, have that memory of him. That's right. I mean, she's not going to. I mean, how many funerals have you been to? Or you know, I know I've been to a lot now. But I mean, previous to me being the coffin confessor, I'd sit there and I'd think, I wonder if that is Jamie in the coffin. You know, we all sit there and we bereave a coffin. Yet no one's actually got the guts to walk up and go, Yeah, hey, guess what? Yeah, that's Jamie. That's Jamie. Yeah, he's in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, who does the open caskets? There are some people do that, don't they? Yeah, there's a lot of people and a lot of religions that'll do the open caskets and all that, you know, and that's only if the person has died in a way that's not, you know, they're recognisable. Obviously, they're not going to scare the shit out of everybody that comes in and goes, oh, fuck, I didn't realise he got shot in the head four times. Yeah. What about when you had to bury a Harley Davidson? Yeah, look, the, the laws are really strict, I, I guess worldwide, not just here, but um, you, you can't really bury anything with a coffin. I think it's illegal. Um, however, has there been items buried with the coffin? Yeah, a motorcycle? Yeah, absolutely. Did I do it? I'm not saying I did. Was I there when it happened? I might have been. But, uh, yeah, yeah. so items do get taken. How do you fit that? How do you fit oh, it? Yeah. Mate, those holes are pretty deep and big. You know how they say six foot under? They're fucking not six. They're like 12 foot. What? You ever jump down a grave? Give it a go one day. Did you just ask if I've ever jumped down a grave? <laughs> yeah, give it a go one day. I haven't. Seriously, it scares the absolute, it scares the absolute yeah. shit out of you. You just jump down and have a look up and you think, holy shit, they, they're not six foot, I'm telling you. The ones I've been to are Jewish ones. They're all Jewish funerals. My family's like, you know, and so they're like, you're supposed to, they don't seem to be that deep actually. And, and that might be just because it's a Jewish thing. And then each person at the funeral is supposed to go and like get, get the spade and like get some of the dirt. Yeah. And put a bit of soil yeah. on each one. Is that common as yeah. well outside of Jewish ceremony as well? I, I got to tell you that I, the one thing I've learned about the Jewish and when it's not that deep is usually because there's another Jew under them. No way. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm just saying. That's all I've heard. Uh-huh. I've never. I don't think that's true. Yeah, well, some gra- t- gravestones. I don't know. Yeah, mm. they're replaceable. You just pull them out and put another one in. No, oh, I'm not having that, mate. The, the world's the world is a funny place, mate. You never know. Mm. You never know. Well, 
Uh, what about? So you're supposed to you put mobile, mobile phones in there. Uh, oh yeah, the sex toys one. I want to hear about that because you had to go and clear. There was there was an eight year old, <laughs> wasn't there? Eighty eight year old, yeah, eighty eight year old man that had a um, he had a fall at home, and okay, a lot of elderly people have falls. They go to hospital, they come back home. Anyway, this guy was taken to hospital, and he was told he'll never go home again. He'll die in hospital, and they took him straight to palliative care. And it was his nurse. Um, this guy got in touch with me and he said, oh, look, I'm the nurse for this guy. He's, he's just come in. He needs a um, some items retrieved from his home. Are you able to do that as a coffin confessor? And that was my first gig. And I went, yeah, why not? So I went and met this bloke. Um, he was in palliative care. He was in a bad way. And uh, as fucked up as he was and he knew he was close to death, the thing that scared him the most was his sons going to his house and finding the items that he'd left behind and he needed those removed. So we arranged that I go to his place um, and remove those items and he didn't tell me <laughs> is that in the bedroom that he wanted me to remove the items from was actually like a uh, – it was a sex dungeon. That's how you could explain it. It was ridiculous. Uh ridiculous for an 88 year old man do you, do you think he was using it still in his 80s because maybe he'd had it from 30 years ago and he hadn't used it for 30 years no no fucking way i know he was still using it i mean everything i collected and even some of the stuff had price tags on it from only a week prior to his, his you know fall um you know his neighbor was quite uh, insistent on knowing what was going on and my stuff was being removed but i was just doing it so discreetly and letting her know that oh he'll be fine he's in hospital you'll have to go see him and i believe she was a bit of a swinger for him so yeah. good on yeah, him though good on him um what about other times when you get sad uh could you get very close with these people i'm thinking in particular of there was a woman who um whose kids were just like taking all her money yeah, um, I, I don't get emotional. I feel for them because there's so many vultures in families and you don't know the vultures until you're actually on your deathbed. And this lady was on her deathbed and I was there at the time that her son and daughter were arguing about who's getting her car and who's getting the jewellery off her hand. Um, I was quite upset about that uh, in a way that I'd say to the guy, you know, you think you're going to take your mum's rings off her fingers now while she's alive. You've got another th thought coming, <laughs> especially while I'm here. Um, and we organised a barrister and a, a doctor, two doctors actually, became sound of mind for her and um, they witnessed her, all her accounts and the barrister drew up a new will and I presented the new will at the will reading. And it was, um, it was a godsend. She, you know... That's what she wanted, and that's what she got, and they got nothing. Was that her that got you to call the daughter on the phone while she was there just to hear her being upset about the wheel changing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what a cow. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that was <laughs> – you know what? That was the funniest, funniest part of the job, and I suppose the most rewarding, is when the person that you're working for is still alive – and they're sitting there and they're having a giggle and they're waiting for her to answer the phone and the phone answers and I go, hey, Claire. And she goes, yeah, hi, how are you? I said, it's Bill Edgar, coffin confessor. I'm just letting you know that uh, your mum's will's been changed and you're getting nothing. 
And she went off her fucking head. And she go, I'm going to the police. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm going to come and see mum. And I'm like, well, your mum's basically got four hours left, so I don't know where you are. But it was uh, <laughs> the smile on my client's face and then she just fell asleep, you know. So, yeah, it was gold. Yeah, I suppose it's like you made her last. <laughs> you made her last moments a bit better by <laughs> fucking over the daughter. But I suppose the the mum probably had some conflicted. I mean, it's not that nice that you're about to die, and the last thing is, you know, pissing off your family because they were horrible anyway. Well, that's right. I mean, that's what I mean. There's so many vultures in families, and they're all arguing before you even gone. Like, like for instance, Graham. Right now, my first client, Graham, he didn't only have. A, a, a best mate that was an absolute prick. Graham had three people at the funeral that he wanted me to out and ask them to fuck off. And that was his brother, his brother's wife, and their daughter. Now, when I was at the funeral, before I even went in to, you know, and sit with the mourners, friends, and family, this guy came up to me and he goes, Oh, how did you know Graham? And I'd say, Oh, you know, I just worked with him. And I go, How did you know Graham? He goes, Oh, I'm his brother. And I'm like, Oh, good, excellent. Didn't even have to look for you. So, Straight in, you know, and I said to this guy, I said, uh, I said, and if, uh, you know, Greg, Sandra and Melissa are here, you can stand up and fuck off as well because Graham doesn't want you here. He doesn't want you at his funeral. You weren't invited. He hasn't seen you in 30 years. Now, fuck off. You wanted to pay your respects. You should have done it while you was alive. And you can also pay back his wife the 10 grand you borrowed 30 years ago. You must be able to hear a pin drop at that moment. Or, or is there a bit of people going, oh, like that? Yeah, there's, there's a bit going on. A few people pull out the mobile phones and, and try to record, but I'm pretty quick. I'm, I'm, I get the crowd on my side pretty quick because that's, that's the actual thing. That's how you get away with most of it is by getting the crowd on your side. You know, you go in and you say, hey, listen, I'm Bill Edgar. I'm the coffin confessor. The person in the casket is your loved one. You want to hear what they want to say, sit down, shut up and listen. If you don't, fuck off. It's quite simple, you know, and if you all want to fucking play up and fuck off, then I'll take my client with me because there's another undertaker out there, another hearse, and I've got a contract where I can take my client and they can be buried in another estate, you know, and they all, they're they're pretty good. My God. What about, have you ever sort of, you know, faced violence from people? Because some people must react violently. Oh, some do, but I mean, like I said, you get the crowd on your side, the crowd sort of whistles it down a bit. I mean, the bikey's funeral that I I confessed to the bikey being gay, I mean, a couple of those boys came up to me and said, like, you know, mate, you got to fuck off. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm doing a job. And they go, well, you're going to end up in the fucking grave with, with, you know, old mate. And I'm like, well, if that happens, it happens, but at least I do my job. And then a couple of the other boys would go, no, listen, let's hear what he has to say. If we like what he has to say, he can stay. If we don't, then we'll bury him. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm like, yeah, great. Well, you still happened in that instance, as far as I remember, so, what you had to say was that the biker had been gay. Yeah, exactly, and that it wasn't Andrew in the crowd because there was four or five Andrews there and they all looked at each other. So that's sort of how that went down. He had a bit of humour about him. He was a nice guy, but he, he said he, he was pissed off with life because you could never live. What was his words? His words were, why is it we can't live true to ourselves? We have to hide when, we, when we're in love with somebody or something that no one really can understand or appreciate. We have to hide. So we're not true to ourselves. And I want to be true to myself, you know, in the afterlife. And that's what he did. It must have been really difficult for him to live a whole life, you know, pretending he wasn't who he was. Well, that happens every day to a lot of people, doesn't it? You know, that's, that's one of those things, mate. Yeah, yeah. Do you reckon then that 
your upbringing in terms of like people not listening to you about the truth people keeping things secret led to you wanting to having this feeling of wanting to expose anything that's a secret oh absolutely yeah 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 hands down mate i've I've got um yeah no problem at all you know delivering secrets and, and exposing people and things you know and i believe it's definitely come from my childhood you know even my old man you know where you know he he was a notorious fucking criminal in australia and um you know some people go oh you know it was notorious well he fucking killed people you know he did some bad shit and he got away with it you know and why he got away with it is because he got killed <laughs> you know that's that, that's the life of a hitman you know, and people go, well, why would you say that? Why would you expose that? Because he was a cunt. And that's the plain truth, mate. He was my old man. He left me when I was four. He came back into my life now and then. He allowed me to fucking, you know, be who I am today. But at the same time, if he was a nurturing, caring father, I wouldn't have had to go through all that shit. Do you, do you look back at, you know, how things have gone so far? in your life and I say so far because you're not I'm not talking to a 70 year old man at the moment but 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 so far given all you know the abuse uh all from all every different direction growing up without a father present all those things it, your life could have afterwards gone a lot lot worse you, you feel like you mean you've done all right haven't you it's, it's pretty good no I've done magnificent absolutely magnificent and it wouldn't be so if it wasn't for my wife i mean i met my wife when i was what we were 15 years of age when i stole a school uniform and just walked into a school sat in a classroom told the teacher i was a new student and the girl behind me turned to her friend and said i'm going to marry that boy one day and 38 years later we're still together Thank you, Bill Edgar, the Coffin Confessor, for once more skating along the edge of life, death, and the secrets in between. I was shocked and appalled to read and hear about the full extent of the abuse Bill endured at the hands of his family with that villainous grandfather, a character I won't soon forget. Read the full book, The Coffin Confessor, which you can get in all the normal places and do sign up to patreon.com slash andrewgold to support the podcast to get the full bonus segment and to get ad-free episodes that slip right into your apple podcast or cast box or whatever it might be whatever platform you use you'll just be able to use it as normal once you set it up please remember to review the podcast on Castbox and apple i got a one star review recently from aye underscore today in the uk gave one star and said i used to love this podcast it was my favorite but now it's just become a soapbox for right-wing bigots i'm happy and interested to hear different opinions to mine but it is exceptionally unbalanced now andrew loves to hide his poor journalism behind his motto curiosity not judgment unless they're left-wing then of course he will challenge folk in their views uh for some reason i get my reviews in the middle of the night that's when I so so you know I got up for a toilet break and saw that and couldn't get back to sleep. I think that a lot of bad reviews from lunatics or bad faith actors or or fellow podcasters who want to knock me down, but this one actually hurt. And it's tough because on the one hand, to make it in this business, I know you have to have thick skin. You have to realize that you can't please everyone all the time, and that if you try too hard to please everyone, you'll please no one. At the same time, if you don't take on board criticism and feedback, you'll also go nowhere fast. You know, you've got to always be open to advice and things like that. 
The reason this hurt is because there's some truth in it. I don't like the idea that there's shoddy journalism or whatever. Is that what you said? No, you just said poor journalism. Uh, I don't like that. And and also, it's it's not true that it's a soapbox for right-wing bigots because I think there's only been one or two people out of 150 who would describe themselves as even centre-right. Gad Saad would be one of them. A lot of classical liberals who don't adhere to some of the woke stuff um, going on. But I do think I find it harder to challenge some of the more right-wing views that come up. And I think that comes from a fear of appearing righteous or morally indignant in some way, like I think I'm ethically superior to the person speaking. I find that very hard to broach. When talking to left-wing people, I find it a little easier because it's like I'm playing the bad guy because I get so fed up of that moral superiority that has become so prevalent today. It's also because I'm socially uh, quite left-wing or at least centre-left. I'm a classical liberal and land on that side with everything from abortion and gun control to prison reform and legalisation of drugs. And that's why when speaking with those on the right, I try to focus on the common ground, uh, the things that bring us together a little bit to show we're not so different because I just don't think we can, you know, there's no point in having arguments where we just shout at each other. It does feel a little easier to debate with other lefties because they're on my team to an extent. Um, and I hope that makes sense. I do want to challenge the more right-wing views, but I want to do it in a way that doesn't alienate them and push them away. Um, but let's see how it goes and, and if I'm able to, to do so without that sort of fear of being morally superior or whatever that might, be, that might be. Now, that said, screw that guy for leaving a one-star review rather than reaching out to me. Um, you know, he could have just gotten in touch, made some nice suggestions, given some constructive feedback, and we could have had a nice chat. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, I YouTube. I always reply to comments and messages, uh, something that's becoming dif more difficult to do as the podcast grows, but I'm still at it. I still think I reply to pretty much everyone. And if I don't reply to you, do do just push again because it might have gotten lost somewhere. Um, I sometimes have awful experiences at restaurants and attractions, and I sometimes get really worked up and think, I'm going to leave a one-star review. But I never do, and I'd never really go out of my way to slander and potentially ruin or damage another person's business and affect their income or just their day. I feel like even if I had something I really wanted to say, I'd, I'd sort of hide it in a three or four star review uh, just because you might have gotten that person on a bad day or I don't know what. And this person said this was his favorite podcast. I mean, the, the weird thing about that is that from the very beginning, I spoke to those kinds of anti-woke people. Um, and it's probably more so at the very beginning of this podcast. Um, and this evidently left-winger, a person of the people, supposedly, is happy to do so, to write a few words, click a few buttons, put a one star, and then get on with their day without a thought for the person's life that they might be affecting. Um, I imagine that I today, the user who left that review, will tell themselves that it's for the greater good, though I suspect it's so that they can feel great and good about themselves. So I do take their point, I appreciate their feedback, but I also bid them good riddance. And on that bitter, bitter note, I thank you for your continued support and hope you enjoy the episodes coming up on Child Sacrifice, Violence and the Children of God Cult.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.